Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is the talk from N.D. Wilson entitled, Reading Life, from the series, The Church and Pop Culture. Check out the full series with talks from Pastor Douglas Wilson, Ken Myers, Peter Lightheart, and Douglas Jones, available now on Canon Plus. Uh, as the stragglers come in, I'll sort of just kind of point and we can all turn and look at them and then snicker collectively at the same time. That's how I try to handle it uh, in class. I'm going to take some stuff, uh, one particular element of what I was saying yesterday, and then try to sort of expand on it, jump on it, uh, spend a little more relaxed time on it. Yesterday, I was trying to blaze right through. Today, I want to take just one aspect, I think the most fundamental aspect of what I was saying yesterday and, and ask what that means. So if you remember yesterday, if it made any sense, form and content, but those are both determined in, in contrast to reality, how the story is told in the real and how the story is told. And I, I define content as personality with the same personality that is used in the real. How does God handle the evil? How does God handle the dark? What happens to it? And so on. But that all assumes, of course, uh, like was discussed yesterday, that the real is in fact art, and that what surrounds us is art, and that it is all God's art, it is all divine art, and that natural revelation is not simply you know, stuff we know about history or science or that kind of thing, but is also stuff we learn about literature and storytelling. So what does it mean if this world is, is in fact art? And backing up just to establish it, just to show that we all agree on this point. And I think we do, even if we don't necessarily know it. My goal yesterday, uh, my goal was just to get through my outline. Today, I'm hoping at least uh, for some of you to put some stretch marks on your comfort zones. I'd really like to try to explore exactly what predestination means and what does it really mean for us uh, as we're criticizing art and as we're trying to create art. So first... The universe is a figure of speech. You probably already know what I don't mean, uh, but I'll explain anyway. Uh, what I don't mean is the kind of thing you might expect some postmodernist to mean if you start talking about you know, different narrative forms and no real meta-narrative that can dominate any other meta-narrative and chuck it all and, and so on. And all his, all his story, they'll say that all is narrative. They just have a problem with the meta on, on narrative. There's all this stories bouncing around, but what makes it cohere, they don't have that. But just because they don't have it doesn't mean that we don't. And it doesn't mean that we disagree on the fact that all is narrative, that all is here as story. The universe is a figure of speech. We have to remember that it was spoken. And more than that, it is spoken. We're not deistic clockwinders. You know, we don't think that God wound it up and then sent it off to go do its business. He spoke it into existence, and he continues to hold it in existence with his word, meaning he's, he's saying it now. So what's everything made out of? Well, according to some, hydrogen is a colorless, odorless gas, which, given 10 billion years, turns into Jeffersonian democracy, narwhals, and ingrown hair. Ha ha, stupid evolutionists, right? We all chuckle at them, but the problem is that they're just not far-fetched enough. The truth requires a more limber imagination, and I really think it does. So we can laugh at them because that's dumb. 
And it is dumb. It really is a stupid thing. But for us, you know, what is it? God created the heavens and the earth through the word. God sustains and holds together the heavens and the earth through the word. The universe is God speaking. So they've got a gas, at least, that, you know, somehow managed to find its way along and turn into these complicated organisms. We just have words. We've got a divine being talking, speaking, and speaking with authority, and in such a way that his words take flesh. Everything that is, is a visible word. If it's here, he's talking. If it's here, he's saying something. This is one of the things that drives me nuts when reformed people are telling charismatics that, you know, that God doesn't talk to you anymore. That, that age is done. You know, that age is over. It's like, oh, yeah, he talks all the time to me. Just I don't get to pick the subject. So, you know, I, I can't just say, OK, God, what's the answer to number seven on my test? You know, it, it's he'll say something. You know, it'll happen. Um, he'll say something like, and now you're going to start pitting out. Um, but pretty soon, the people next to you are going to start smelling you and looking at you. He's talking. Like, he's telling the story. He continues to speak to you. He speaks in your presence and to you. But he says what he wants to say, and he says it as an author. He's speaking as an author. And to make things even more complicated, he, he as an author, enters into the story himself. So he takes on flesh and enters, which is something that none of us could ever, ever do. And when authors try which authors have. I'm thinking of bad authors like Clive Cussler and, and those kind of people who will write themselves into the end of a story. Their character named Clive Cussler shows up and chats with the hero uh, at the end. It just doesn't work. You know, it, it fails because we ultimately can't do this. Everything is a visible word. A visible word made ex nihilo. Sure, we can all, sure, it's not made out of plum pudding. Uh, there was not ultimate chaos before. There wasn't you know, just stuff that he grabbed and shaped. It's made from nothing, quite literally from nothing. What does that mean? Uh, we can, you know, we talk about it, but we don't ever actually start to, to make it shape how we see things. Chase the atomic stack of turtles all the way down and come at some point to the realization that infinite regress is not possible. And that at the inaccessible bottom, there is nothing. So just running it into the ground, what is this made of? Some of you might think wood. Those of us who are closer to it know that it's not actually wood. Some version. So you've got wood. You've got cells. You could talk about different kinds of cellular walls. We could do all the science. Get into the cells. Oh, let's talk on the molecular level. Let's get on the atomic level. How about the subatomic level? We're talking about quarks and elementary particles. And we're just digging deeper and deeper and deeper. And at some point for the Christian has to come the realization that it's made right now in the present tense, from nothing. Is that stack infinite? Do we keep going? Is there another building block? Is there always the next building block down? Is this the Egyptian stack of turtles? It's not. It's nothing. And the miracle is that it's not nothing right now. It's a spoken word made flesh. I'm not trying to go Barclayan on you. We're all as illusion. You know, that, that we're in God's dream. Uh, that's not the case. It's tangible. It's real. Uh, I could lay down on it. I could fall off of it. Uh, it's, it's here. It could support my weight. It has weight. I have weight. And at the same time, we're made from nothing. So this isn't supposed to make scientific sense. It's miracle. Like This is how he creates by spoken word. And he is potent enough 
and has the authority that his words take flesh. The word didn't just take flesh. All of his words take flesh. And the, the miracle of the incarnation is a magnification, an ultimate magnification, a fulfillment of everything else he'd already done in creation. So all of his lowercase w words became flesh, our flesh, are running around shooting each other, falling in love, you know, doing all, running through these different narratives. He says it and it happens. It is. Uh, it's not just that it's, it's not made out of words. That's also important to realize. It is a word. It's not made out of it. It's made from nothing. Spoken into existence by the authority of God, by that infinite creator God. There is miracle constantly present around us. So if you grab anything and start digging and realize that if I just disappeared right now, that wouldn't be a magic trick. Like It would not be an example of God doing something. It would be an example of God no longer doing something. So if I'm gone, my story just ends. Oof, there he goes. Um, realize that he stopped. His mouth stopped. He no longer said me. And that's what happened as opposed to now he will vanish. Although there's elements of that, he's, he's just going to, he just needs to stop talking. He just needs to stop saying my name in fleshing my character and I am no more. And this, this has all sorts of ramifications. Uh, a lot of it is comes with prayer. When you're praying that God would change something, you're praying that he will stop saying something. You know, he's made a decision. He's, he's talking. He's telling the story and you're praying. You know, Lord, take this from me, which is appropriate and biblical in many places. Realize what you're asking. You're asking that he will start telling a different story. You don't like this one. You want the story to go somewhere else. Um, and we like to think of it as, you know, remove him, this guy. Don't, you know, this guy that is attacking me or, or whatever this difficulty is. He's the problem. You know, just get him out of here. Get him out of my novel. I don't want a plot. You know, I don't want a conflict here. Could you just stop it, God? Stop giving me conflict. Um, that's what we're asking for. We're asking for him to stop telling a story, a, a particular story. We're asking for a different one. So everything is from nothing. There is not infinite regress. Hopefully all of us would agree with that. There's not infinite regress down. There's not this infinite stack of smaller and smaller building blocks. We can dig and dig and dig and dig and dig, and we could keep naming halves of something. So we could, I think we could continue to, to name parts without there actually being infinite regress. But Christians need to realize that at some point, ex nihilo means something. It means from nothing. And this is all held in into existence from nothing. As my son is fond of saying, Jesus has all the magic. I think that's really true. It is. It's all, he is the word. And all of this are, we are all words spoken by the word. Uh, coming from the word, in his image even. Of course, the word and sacraments follow, but these are not examples of God speaking when he is otherwise silent. They are examples of God speaking in a clear manner so that we might come to understand how he has spoken and everything else. So I'm, I'm here because in order for us to even watch a film or read a novel and say that is bad or that is good, we need to start watching the film around us. The little ones. We need to start reading the novels around us and realize that our, a lot of our scruples 
are, are formed in little social groups and not by what God does, not by the story he tells around. So there's, uh, I mean, there's, there's any number of examples you can think of. I told you the story about my son and the, uh, the issue of the dog, uh, where he stepped in the dog poo and then I changed him and moved him into another pile of dog poo. And I need to realize that that's funny. That I am being laughed at. Just like we would all realize if it happened to a character in a film. So if we saw that happen to a character in a film, we would all chuckle and laugh even if he was frustrated. That's how we would respond. But as soon as we're in the film, we're the one frustrated. And we get wound up. How dare you, God? You know, that's what it is. Even though we don't think of it that way, that's what we're saying. How, how dare you do this to me? Probably one of the most bizarre experiences I ever had in my life was was a, a speaking engagement I did in Pennsylvania where I walked up at the beginning of a fundraising dinner and I was supposed to chat about classical education and uh, having come through it. And as I turned to the microphone, this voice just comes roaring through the room. This is an expensive fundraising dinner and just says, everyone, let's get wild. <laughs> and I'm thinking, okay, this isn't me. <laughs> and I'm looking out at all of them. And suddenly, low rider starts. And just loud, pouring through the room. Low rider. And I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm just standing here. No, this is, this is all I've got. And of course, I lean forward to try to say something funny. And the microphone just screams. So my microphones just start squealing through the room and I have to back off the mic and everyone's listening to Lowrider and I can't say anything. <laughs> and it's the equivalent of walking over the front and having God pull your pants down. I mean, that's just, here you are. And if you're not willing to be the butt of the joke, if you're not willing to be made laughable, then there's a really large problem. There's a, there's a big problem with us when we're uncomfortable being embarrassed, being humiliated. And I would say here, God has blasphemed himself more times than we can count. If you think about just the, the message of the gospel to the Greeks who hated flesh, like what did he do? He became flesh. Like ultimate spirit, ultimate divinity put on a body that had to use the bathroom. Like that needed to eat. They got tired and needed to sleep. And we even there, we like, but don't say you had to use the bathroom. That's, that's tacky. I didn't make this up. If I made it up, I think I would have a problem. If I, if I decided from scratch to tell you a story about how the tr ultimate transcendent God came down, became flesh, and then had biological function, even the tacky ones, then I'm obviously being irreverent. But he did it. God's the one that did it. And we need to read the story not with our, our current holy speak, um, because the King James is great. We think of the story in terms of these and vows, and so it becomes important instead of what actually happened. Think about the incarnation, not just on a philosophical level where he, spirit, pure spirit, became flesh. But think about it in terms of the ultimate God, the ultimate creator God became an infant that needed its diaper changed. Couldn't do anything. Ultimate vulnerability on some teenage girl's lap and needing a teenage girl to change his pants. That's what he did. Now, how low is he willing to stoop? 
Like I, you know, I'm uncomfortable with somebody saying you low rider when I'm trying to talk. But he went down to that level. And worse, when he was born, where was he born? In a barn. What did he divinely predestine about that whole situation? Where did he arrange for himself to sleep? In the food bowl for the cattle. Like So the ultimate creator God comes down, needs his pants changed, and gets stuck in a food bowl for the oxen in a barn. Like this is, And this is all by his arrangement. Now, this is the story he's telling. Then the angels descend. I mean, oh, here's a moment of majesty. Here's a moment of self-importance, right? One we can imagine a human king embracing. The angels descend to sing, no doubt, the most beautiful piece of music that's ever been sung on this planet. Who did they sing it to? A crowd made up primarily of sheep. <laughs> and that's, that's it. <laughs> So here they come, you know, the heavenly choir descends. You got one shot for the heavenly choir. Here it comes. Gather up the herd because we're going to sing. That's how he tells stories. Like that's how it goes. How, how low can you go? Is it how really, how, how, how willing are you to be embarrassed? How willing are you to, to do that? And like I'm saying, were I to make this up, I would think myself guilty of blasphemy. I do not have the right or the authority to write a story about God like that. I don't. But he did. And he didn't stop. And this is why, I mean, if, just a quick comment on Tolkien. This is why he's brilliant with his Aragorn character. You know, Strider off in the wilderness. No one. Rough. Kind of ugly. Not with wet hair constantly shaking his locks. He walks through doors. <laughs> that's, that's, that's not what was going on. He's out there, you know, you have the characters interact with him. He's, you know, they have all that, all that his gold doesn't glitter, you know, all that stuff. He's rough. Um, and they're the, the hobbits are actually reassured because they think that if he were foul trying to appear fair, he would look fairer. It's like, that's <laughs> like, cause he just looked whipped. He looked beat up. He's been living out in the bushes. It's sort of like the heir apparent of all of Gondor and the Western kingdoms is living in the bushes. You know, that, that is more like what you have in, in reality. So you think about that, and I've always actually, on a tangential note, I've always really wondered, where are the direct descendants of those sheep right now? Like, <laughs> I've been curious. Are they all dead? You know, did they all convert? Have they all been well-behaved ever since? You know, just there has to be something going on because God didn't just drop them. When I'm writing a story, I have constant trouble remembering where I put things. This is true of, I think, most all authors. Does the kid have his sweatshirt on or off? Like, well, I had him take it off on page 47. Where is it now? You know, sort of that's, you know, I'm trying to keep, I'm juggling sweatshirts and pocket knives and all these little details and props that overwhelm me as an author. i got to make sure they're all here and you go through the manuscript, making sure it all gels. But for him, he doesn't do that. Once it's off stage, for us, it's still not off stage for him. Like he's still there. He's still watching. The story continues. And those sheep went on to lead the rest of their lives and have kids and, and move on. And they're probably around somewhere making some really mean wool. Who knows? We don't. We don't have that, that kind of scope. But see his story. See, see what he does to himself. Think of the big, think of the big scary things. The modern world. Who's the most beat up villain that we've ever had? You know, anytime 
somebody brings up Hitler in an argument, you know, they're losing usually. You know, that, that reminds me, that reminds me of the Third Reich you know, and Hitler. It doesn't matter. We tell, we have a little fight over economics or something and the Nazis come up and we beat each other up with it. The Nazis in that moment were big, mean, and scary. No question. You know, arch villains. How did they march around? How did God foreordain from the beginning of time that they would decide to march? They would goose step. And they would be scary to us because we're finite and they really can't shoot us and they killed millions of people. But from his perspective, what did he make them do? I mean, ultimately, he smashed them, thoroughly smashed them. Hitler. People have talked about what a fantastic public speaker he was. Have you ever seen a clip? And just seen the, the kind of fleshy face, the funny face with that, that weird, angry German. You know, so that's, it's just, there's this weird combination. We think he's frightening, horrible villain. Yes, absolutely. 100% horrible villain, killed millions, shattered the Western world. And that just tells you how small we are. But the worst and one of the worst villains of the last century, if not of the modern world, had what kind of mustache? God could not resist drawing that on. <laughs> you know, it's, just, it's as simple as that. What possibly motivated him to do that? He was very, I mean, he was the definition of self-importance. I mean, Hitler took himself so seriously. That's why they marched that way, because it's important. Um, that's why he had that little thing right there. Um, but you look at it from a cosmic perspective, get outside of it. And if you can't see that God is mocking them, that God is laughing at their self-importance and that the little mustache and the goose stepping guarantee you that they won't win, guarantee you that they will get smashed because God is already laughing, like then, then there's a problem. Now, that's a dark moment. No question that's a dark moment. Really dark. But you think about allied forces in the moment. Should they have been able to laugh at Hitler's face? At his mustache. At how they goose-stepped. They should have been. I think many of them were laughing at how they marched and the mustache and, and all that kind of thing. And that was appropriate. You know, it really was. And we're told not to fear, fear the, uh, those, those who can kill the body. We're, we're not supposed to be af- afraid of that. And there's a level on which in God's story, when you, when you die, it's only death. For us, it's this big, horrible thing. For him, it's universal to everyone's narrative, with a few exceptions. Enoch, Lewis would say King Arthur. You know, there's, a, there's a few exceptions out there where people don't die. Lewis had fun with things like that. He had a, I think Lewis had a list of four people that he said hadn't died. Enoch, King Arthur, I, I don't remember who else. But anyhow, we look at death, and Christians are not supposed to fear it. And yeah, it's scary because it's down here on our level. Christ embraced it and then defeated it. It's not the end. And that's the back to the old question of tragedy. Can you have true tragedy now? No, you can't. Because ultimately, at the end of Hamlet, when there's bodies all over, all of them are going to get back up. Some of them are going to go burn. Maybe all of them are going to go burn. Some of them are going to go up. You know, that, and that's the, that's the issue. Uh, as a as a quick example here, as I, I tell my son the story of Samson, he really likes the story of Samson. I try not to candy coat it for him. 
I don't want to pretend that the darkness wasn't as dark. Meaning, Samson didn't go off to visit his cousin and get caught by the Philistines. Samson was with, he, he was with Delilah. When he had to carry the gates off, uh, was he supposed to be in, in that city doing what he was doing? Uh, Samson was ex- extraordinarily strong, blessed by God, and still fell. Samson fell. And if you don't explain that, you don't explain the fall, then it's injustice. You know, then there's something wrong with God's story. There must have been a fall. Now, when we get to the part where Samson gets his eyes taken out, which I tell, you know, my son is really, really affected. So he's strongly affected, emotionally affected, horrified. But that's in there. And I'm telling him the story. Samson got his eyes taken out. He was a slave. They cut his hair. He was weak. They took out his eyes. How more beaten can you be? The more beaten you are, the larger the fall, the deeper the darkness, the bigger the redemption, the brighter the light, the more miraculous uh, the rescue. That's what it comes down to. So when I tell the story of Samson, we get past the eyes. Samson repents. Samson confesses his sin and God forgives him and he starts growing his hair back and he regains his strength. And then he topples the whole place and kills all of them, and he dies too. If I stop there, he's going to freak out at me. And then he killed all of them, and he died also. You know, the end, roll credits. He's very upset to end there, and he knows he wants to hear about the resurrection right now. (laughs) Can we carry this on into the eschaton, please? Um, And more than that, he wants to know where Samson is right now. Is he dead now? No, he's not. Does he have his ultimate resurrection body? No. Where is Samson? He's asking these questions. Where is he? Because he is someplace right now physically. He is someplace. That person, that narrative is does now have location. And he's in heaven. So that's where he is. And not in some wispy heaven. So we say he's in the stars. That's where he is. Because if I just say heaven, and then I, I remember my own thought process. Okay, you got the puffy clouds, spirit world, so forth. No, Christ is there physically. Christ took the body that ate fish and, and other things up. They all watched him. They all gathered around to send him off, and he traveled up. Did he go into the fourth dimension? He went up. That's where he went. And he's there now, right now, physically extended like we are right now. That's where he is. And it's so easy for us to just block parts of the story out. So, whoa, Samson's a sad story. Samson's a tragedy. No, it's not a tragedy because it ties into the rest uh, because it goes, it goes into the rest. Okay. There's a lot there. And as you, as you walk through life, you should see and enjoy all of it. If something funny happens at your expense, you should be the first one laughing, even if it's truly humiliating. I'm going to tell a story on my brother-in-law. That I, I think is hilarious. He thought it was hilarious. It qualifies as his officially, I think, as his most embarrassing moment. Uh, he's, which is why I'm going to tell it on him. He's he's at Christ Church College in Oxford right now, uh, studying Jewish studies. Uh, he got a fellowship over there. We're all real excited. He's got all these places to go, people to meet, meet his tutor, run over here, meet the department guys, run over there, meet the college officials. He's got a schedule of orientations. He's trying to make sense in a you know foreign country with the bus schedules and all this stuff. So he ends up showing up late, having to park in a meter 
10, like 10 minute meter spot, running in for an orientation in the hall of Christchurch College. The hall of Christchurch College. It's funny because I could tell you, well, Henry VIII did this or that or John Milton or something like that. But it's easier just to say, this is where they shot. This is the dining room from the Harry Potter movies. So <laughs> in the Harry Potter movies, all the kids sit down at the tables in this hall. That's this hall at Christchurch College. That's where it is. Christchurch College is the wealthiest college at Oxford. They've got 450 students on every level, and they've got 150 porters. So that's it's kind of over the top and funny. So he's going to the hall, the Harry Potter hall, where there's an original portrait of Henry VIII on the wall. And he runs in for an orientation, and he's late, hustling, hustling, hustling. And he walks in, and there's these long tables at this orientation with the big chairs behind them, and they all have assigned seats. And everyone is in white tie and academic gowns. And he's in cords. <laughs> Just a normal button-up shirt and cords. And he's thinking, <laughs> you know, how, how did this happen? You know, <laughs> what is going on here? So he bustles into the hall, opens the doors late. And here they all are looking at white bow tie academic gown. So this is a white tie event. And so he kind of walks over to his assigned seat and sits down in his cords. Because he's late, he doesn't have any other options. He's just gotten here. He doesn't even have academic robes yet. Didn't know he needed them. <laughs> so he's sitting here. And he's thinking, okay, this is humiliating. And then they bring out the historic books for the college. And when people enter this college, they all have to sign the book. So this is the book that all these ancient guys have signed. This is an ancient, ancient college. Milton signed these books. So did Guinness founder of Guinness, but a lot, <laughs> a lot of guys, there's a lot of literary stars, Sir Philip Sidney, like these guys sign these books and he's sitting here in cords while everyone else is in white tie, understanding the, the importance of the event. And the president of Christchurch college starts calling them up one at a time <laughs> and he shakes their hand and they sign the book. So this is that ritual. <laughs> so he figured being the the stinking Yankee who's there in cords that the only way he can make up for it was by being really exuberant. <laughs> so if you're thrown in if you're thrown into that situation, you realize that God just corralled you into this moment of ultimate humiliation. You gotta go up there and just give the guy a big cheesy grin and really shake his hand <laughs> and, and sign like you don't know there's a problem. <laughs> And that's what he did. I really don't think that there's a better person to handle that uh, than my brother-in-law. But that could be crushing. If you're self-important at all, and you're excited about entering into one of the most historic colleges at Oxford, <laughs> and this is your introduction to the group, uh, that could be absolutely crushing. And... God did it. If you, you can kick yourself if you missed a note or something like that. But ultimately, this is by his arrangement. This is him. And for you to be upset is to be upset at him. As you walk through life, as you walk around and you watch what happens, if you see a squirrel take one and a half rotations in a, a tire, thud against the top of the wheel well, and then run off, sort of just be like, <laughs> you throw your hands up and think, you know, there we go. Triumph for the little guy again. You know, there's, you know, there it is. If you don't think God is telling stories on the micro level, 
and on the macro level that the planets are you think the planets aren't doing anything interesting of uh, it's, it's a bizarre assumption uh, my son and i flipped over a rock pulling it out of our yard and there's of course a very upset anthill underneath i would like to leave in there but i didn't want the rock in my yard so i throw the rock away and they're all there wondering what to do and they're all blaming each other for this apocalypse <laughs> i mean really and i just kind of laughed it's like man Sorry, fellas. Rome has ended. <laughs> you know, sort of. And, and I walk off. A little later, my son and I came back by, and they had rounded up earwigs. And they were methodically executing them in the center of the hill. And I was it's not their fault. <laughs> it's like there is scapegoating going on on that level. And it was bizarre. My son and I stood there watching the earwigs get executed. And I know they're blaming them. I mean, the earwigs weren't there when I flipped the rock over. These guys are trying to find some reason. What happened? Who did this to us? You know, and they, and they pull it all, pull it all together. That happens on that level. And if you don't think God is taking joy in it, that God is not reveling in telling a story with ultimate detail, complete with ant ancestries, genealogies, and Internal conflict, civil wars, killing the airwigs, and then some random guy kicking a rock over and ending their civilization. You know, that's, it's bizarre. I honestly didn't think my re, I mentioned ant wars yesterday. One of the reasons why I think they're on the sidewalk is because I think so frequently God likes to end them with a pedestrian <laughs> or a bicycle, you know, where they're just, they're out there fighting. And then it's just, this is the cosmic end of the world. I mean, you know, look at the earthquakes and, what is this? You know, guy walks through or, or my two-year-old daughter kind of tromps right through it without noticing killing millions. You know, that's how he, all of this, all of this is happening in his narrative. As you watch, as you watch it happen, see his personality everywhere. See it. Now, evil, uh, Jones is talking about the glory of evil, the necessity of evil in good story, the necessity of conflict in good story. I think that's absolutely it. That is the solution to the problem of evil. And more than that, Christians shouldn't sit around wishing it would all go away. Christians should want to attack it. Live like characters they would respect on the screen or in a novel. Stop whining. If I read a book with a character whining this much, I would stop. I wouldn't read it. I'd put it down. It would bore me. And we have to view ourselves that way as characters in a novel, in a play, in a film. And when this, when somebody else determines what happens, here's the setting for your story. And here you are. How do you respond? And sometimes you can be all caught up. I don't know. It's so complicated. What's the right thing to do? And if you were watching a film with somebody caught in the same situation, you'd be yelling at the screen. You know, idiot, go that way. You know, as soon as you're removed, as soon as you're eight feet above the situation, as soon as you get out of it and read it, everyone can tell you what the guy's supposed to do. Everyone, should Achilles sulk in his tent? <laughs> no, Achilles should not sulk in his tent. That's not the masculine thing to do. How often are people tempted to sulk in their tent and then decide that it is, in fact, the masculine thing to do? Achilles thought it was. Achilles, the great hero of divine descent, thought the most masculine thing for him to do in that circumstance was to pout. So he picked it. He went that direction. And Homer understood 
that that was at the root of his downfall. Homer understood it, even if Homer still wants to praise him and, and so forth. There's a lot of stuff that happens. Let me tell one more little tangential story uh, as an example of how, how living this way can be really fun. You start to notice that God does all sorts of things, particularly for your enjoyment and his. He's the primary audience, but he's bringing us up to watch with him. So if you step out your front door and something really funny happens, immediately thank him. Now, this is from him. He said it to you right now in the present tense. He spoke it. He's speaking. This is verbal. Uh, that's what's going on. I was sitting at a traffic light driving my son home and his, and his cousin, driving them both home from school. And I'm one car back at this red light. I'm just sitting here watching, and I notice that there's a girl, slightly chunky sorority girl on the corner on a little BMX dirt bike. I'm thinking, what is she doing on a little BMX dirt bike? She's goofing off. You know, this isn't her bike. She's messing around with it. She's trying to get it to go, and it's just not going. She's wearing a sweatshirt and big baggy sweatpants and kind of laughing and trying to pedal. And we're sitting in the red light, and she's trying to cross the street, and she cannot get the bike to move. Just cranking on. It's a little trick bike. There's only one gear. She's trying to start in the, in the low gear, and she can't get it going. And she never does. Her light turns red. Our light turns green. We start to go. As soon as we start to go, she shoots out into the intersection. So she comes wobbly out into the intersection. We all hit the brakes and stop as she, you know, out through the middle of it. And then in a panic, she pedals faster. She starts cranking. She gets through the crosswalk and she's heading right at the side of an architecture building. U of I architecture class. Class is held there. She just zips up the sidewalk, doesn't even have time to kind of hit the brakes, turns sideways, slams against the wall and her sweatpants fall off. And she falls over. <laughs> And we all roll slowly by. <laughs> every, every one of us laughing. And that's, you sit there at a stoplight and God says, let me tell you a little story. <laughs> you know, that's what's happening. And that's why I said yesterday, he's not the sort of person you necessarily want to take to parties. <laughs> because his stories are not always appropriate. Now about the ramifications, see the world that way and realize that it is fundamentally comic. It really is. And if God can laugh when he's the one who sent his son to die, his son to die as the only innocent, when he's the one who ordained that his creation, which he called good, would get ravaged so that he would send his son to die, if he can laugh, then why can't we? I mean, why, do we why do we need to take it more seriously than he does? He brings it to ultimate comedy. He brings it meaning happy ending, not just slapstick. I'm not just thinking Three Stooges here. Now, there are all sorts of ramifications that come from a belief in this magic. Discussions of the problem of evil, of free will and sovereignty, ontology, metaphysics. You know, you might think I'm going Barclay and I'm really not. I, you know, it's not all just dream and, and that sort of thing. Now, there's a lot to talk about, and I, I don't want to spend all my time there. Uh, the real issue is how does this fit into a discussion of pop culture? I really want to get there, maybe. But for now, remember, this is just, this is the measuring stick. We're talking about the measuring stick by which we should judge successful novel writing, successful filmmaking, and so on. Of this reality, the novel, the natural revelation that we have. For now, realize what it means about you. Start thinking about you individually. This is the only time I'd ever tell a bunch of reformed people to get a little introspective. But uh, let's go ahead and go there. 
And actually, it'd be good if you learn to watch yourself, not from your own eyeballs looking down at the navel, but get outside yourself. Watch the scenes in which you partake. So if you're watching the screen and you enter stage left, what role are you playing? Because you've got one. What character are you? In a film, we pick up, we pick up on him in no time. Oh, he's the, cra- he's the cranky guardian character that needs to be overthrown. No, it's right there. Everybody sees it. But when we're living, we're blind to who we are really quickly. So think about yourself. And this narrative reality, the sets, the backgrounds, they aren't the only things spoken by God. So are we. You are living in a play. You are living in a novel. And the horrifying reality is you might be Mr. Collins. You just don't know. Am I that guy? That's what you should be asking yourself. Which character am I? Self as character. Watch the potters, the iPodders, and the bloggers for only a few minutes. And it's not hard to see that the younger generation perpetually views themselves as characters in in a film, in a novel. They just are totally inept at identifying which characters they are. And they they have this soundtrack running. You know, the guy walking, walking down the street with his hands in his pockets with his iPod in, thinks he's the protagonist. Put him in the film. Have him hunched over, walking down the sidewalk. The iPod, and he's only the he's the he's only going to be the protagonist if it's a Napoleon Dynamite type film, where the whole thing moves and works because the protagonist is an idiot. And that's it. But he still sees himself as the hero, probably Neo, most likely. And so you can spot those really quickly: the trench coats, you know, the dark trench coats, uh, sunglasses when it's really really uh, cloudy. You know, that that kind of thing. It's not hard. They have a soundtrack. They view themselves as being in the story, but they're just totally inept at figuring out which story it is. If you've ever watched any reality TV, then you know that self-delusion is the theme of our age. It really is. And we love to watch other people if they're deluded. People are unable to see themselves accurately. They're capable of being the most cliched, stereotypical bit villain. Really. Petty, bitter. Irritating on TV. So they know they're on a television show. They know everyone's watching and they can't stop being this cliched, petty, resentful little villain. And then they view themselves as the hero, as the protagonist. That's the amazing thing. This really isn't new. I think everybody's been deluded throughout all of history, about themselves at least. Socrates, for example. This isn't new, but it's highly visible in our time. It's really everywhere. We can see it quickly. And it comes from an inability to read life, to see what's actually happening, an inability to laugh at yourself when you become the butt of a joke, to laugh when God causes you to stub your toe twice in the same night, really, really badly. You'll never walk the same. And he's laughing and you're saying, this is my toe. You know, this is important here. (laughs) And he continues laughing. Watch yourself as a character. The people on American Idol aren't the only self-blind people. People who think they're the next rock star when they can't hold a tune are not the only ones deluded. We all struggle with this. Step back and watch it. Watch your story. See yourself in the story from the outside, not from the inside, because from the outside is where the clarity comes. Watch the words come out of your mouth as you respond to a parishioner or to your child. If there's, You can think, well, I wasn't really snappy. And I was just sort of you know, helpfully redirecting. Would you say the same thing for a character in a film? As they snap, 
as they get irritated over something that's just not important? Would you have any respect or sympathy for a character who acts like you in a film? No. Very rarely. Sometimes yes, but very rarely. And this is, this is a perpetual human difficulty. We sin and immediately begin rationalizing it. We immediately start telling a story. And the way we handle sin is you retell it. If you've ever, I'm sure you have, dealt with some people who, are, who have bitterness as pastors who come in and they're telling you something that's usually offense that happened two years ago, if that. That's kind of recent for a, a bitterness problem to emerge. But they have no clue what happened because they've been telling this story for so long to themselves. And every time they tweak it just a little bit to make themselves more and more the hero. So pretty soon they forgot what they did entirely. And they're just the victim. 100%. We all have this temptation. As soon as we sin, we rewrite the story. See, I didn't really fail. I didn't bring this on myself. This isn't my fault. It just happened. He did it. And here's his motivations. Allow me to perceive into his mind real quickly for you and tell you his motivations. There's a big, big difference between an omniscient and an omnipresent narrator. So an omnipresent narrator can tell you what happened. An omniscient narrator is in everyone's head when it happens. And that's God. God is the omniscient. At best, at best in a situation, we can approach the omnipresent narrator if we know exactly what happened detail-wise, but we don't know what's going on between the ears. He knows all of that. He knows your motivation. He knows the other guy's motivation. He knows which character you are. So he knows all that, and the best thing we can do is try to get outside of it and watch it play like a scene. Watch it play like a scene from a movie, and we'll have a much better sense of who we actually are. Okay, jumping into this a little bit. Hopefully this is where we can we can get uh, amused at ourselves. Watch the words come out of your mouths and sketch your character. Do you talk too much? Are you easily offended? Do you pretend to know the answers to questions you've never heard? You know if you do this. God knows if you do this. And an author would start by identifying those internal motivating attributes. He wouldn't say approximately six foot four, weighs this much, and let's show, let's show them to you in action. He's going to get into the heart and into the mind immediately. That's where the author is going. We need to be able to see that. There's enough sin. There's enough material in all of our lives to give any cynical author enjoyment. Anybody who's ready to be a little biting in their description. How many pastor stories are there out there? How many films in which pastors appear? And we always say things like, well, my problem with that movie is because the, the pastor is just such a wimp. He's so soft. How many wimpy pastors are there? How many soft pastors are out there acting out their films as that boring bit character that everybody gets to laugh at? Lots of them. Many, many of them. There once was a man who liked books, not people. So he became a pastor. There's one character. That's the beginning of one sardonic short story. Many years ago, in a college group, Frederick realized the feminine attention a spiritual leader could receive, and so he went to seminary. Like, God knows if that was motivation, even if you told yourself it never was. Now, I'm talking broadly, and I'm talking really cynically. I'm not trying to accuse anyone here. We all, we all have sin. We all have weakness. We all do this kind of thing. And God still manages to love us. That's the amazing thing, in my opinion. He still manages to write stories that are deeply flawed that we, that he can 
relate to, that he continues to save and work with, that he sanctifies. Now, this is honestly why I really enjoy the TV show The Office. Every one of those characters is full of hypocrisy, self-deception, and so on. And the authors have a real affection for all of them. So we're always laughing at them, but there's, there remains this kind of uh, affectionate satire there. These are the kind of things that we're capable of. I mean, like my grandfather has told me many times, I've heard him tell other people too, if you just had a video screen over your head, rolling your thoughts for everyone to see through a 24-hour period, you would not have any friends. Probably be divorced. It, it, it would fall apart for us. These aren't stretches as far as internal motivations. The darkness of our own depravity, while we're sanctifying even, this is this is not over the top here. These these examples aren't there. You know, they're not way outlandish as far as as far as being internal to our minds. And remember that God still somehow has affection despite it and is still willing to work with us. And more than that, realize that in order for him to have affection and work with us, he has to have fundamentally have a successful comic sense. In order to be working with a pastor or anyone who's got this kind of stuff rolling in their head, the kind of stuff we all have rolling in our heads on a daily basis, he must be laughing while he's working us through it. So while he's trying to work us through it, he must be laughing. And one of the first things that we could do that will help would be realizing the same thing he knows. Whenever Mrs. Bradford struggled with the homeschooling, Mr. Bradford thanked God for the thickness of his study door. While the children yelled and complained, he would select a thick book to keep his lap warm and stare out his window at the tree behind the house. He was very thoughtful. That's more the reformed guy right there. Sorry, honey, I'm called to important and lofty things, like pondering. I mean, that's that's real. This really happens. You leave your wife over there drowning with the kids that you begat. Well, you sit and think. I mean, that's what would we think of that character written by Jane Austen? She might have affection for him. We're happy to be that character in real life, in the presence of God. And then we still have the audacity to go laugh at Mr. Collins and not see him as our brother. Hearts sank when the door opened and Pastor Leonard joined the party. He was a talker, which was, of course, why he'd been hired by the search committee. People had, however, hoped the talking would be limited to Sunday mornings. They'd been quickly disappointed. His wife was quiet. She'd seemed to have given up on words long ago and now communicated with smiles and nods. Luckily, however, when Pastor Leonard spoke, he required no audience. He was self-sustaining in his conversation, which both lessened his social impact and enabled his psyche to survive the occasional failed sermon. Is this a real guy? And then you should say, yeah, it is. The next question should be, is it me? <laughs> is, this, is this me? If someone were able to write every one of our scenes, recalling all of our dialogue, all of it, somebody wrote it down with all of our dialogue, all of our thoughts, and all the perceptions that the other characters were having of us at that moment, all the thoughts everyone else is having while we're talking, we would be truly horrified. But this is what God has done. This is what he's doing. He writes you, you walk in blind, you chatter. Everyone else is sitting there thinking thoughts about you. You're not noticing. God's laughing. Everyone exits stage right. And then because he likes doing the sunset again every single day, he'll do that to you again tomorrow also. 
Okay, it's like, sun's up, woo, we got that done, the sky's wonderful, and let's trot out Pastor Leonard again. <laughs> Get him back out here. We would be really horrified, truly horrified at God's pure. We have a flawed perception if we could see ourselves honestly with other people's thoughts rolling, the impressions we're actually making. If we could see all that, we would be horrified. And God still manages to like us somehow. This is what he's done. He's written us with all our flaws. If we plan on growing, on having matured by the end of the story, we need to read it now in the present tense. If we want to be somebody else by the time the book ends, we need to be watching what we're doing right in the moment. And we need to act as characters with all the objectivity of readers. So act as a character with the objectivity of a reader. If you can learn to read life, to watch the story happen, to see yourself in a situation from eight feet above it, there's very little difficulty in discerning what you should do. At the same time, man's heart is still fallen. So getting up there and staying up there is extremely, extremely tough. And also, it doesn't mean you're not going to sin. It just means if you do, it is going to be a higher act of rebellion. Because you know God's in the room. You know he's watching. You know what character you're being. And you still do it. And that's a, a more grievous sin. You're sinning against greater light. You've got greater perception. Uh, and you still manage to do it. There's all sorts of, all sorts of difficulties there. Um, it's, it's really hard to do. It's easy to, to watch other people and enjoy the story God is telling. But get yourself in there. Get yourself in there as character, and then try to discern what you should do. Applying this quickly to pop culture, the cycle is interesting. Reading life, opening our eyes and ears to God's narrative around us, and his perpetual laughter with us and at us all the time, will better enable us to penetrate and criticize the poor narrative imitations that surround us in all our communities. That is what's going to enable us to see through pop culture, when we're watching real culture, when we're looking at art, all of reality, but not ours, when we're looking at God's art and we begin to see it and be able to read it, then when we look at the imitations that are out there on the screen, on the pages, it becomes just tragically poor. So we will be able to, to better penetrate those, those imitations. Teaching others to do the same, to see themselves as they are rather than as they wish and imagine themselves to be, is both humbling and protective. See others the same way, the same way that you're, you're seeing yourself, and suddenly the cool is far more unthreatening. It all becomes posturing. All of it. And it's all written in the novel as posturing. The motivations for that eyebrow ring are written by the author. And everyone knows, meaning on the triune readership level, exactly why he did it. Because it's in there in the prose. Brad Pitt becomes pitied rather than envied. He's no longer a danger to your children. Reading life informs our criticism of stories, but it is the stories that shape our criticism of life. So getting your children the good books early helps them to see the world how they should. Learning to see the world how they should defends them against the bad stories later. So you're selecting the reading of your children. Hopefully, you give them the stuff to read so that they'll learn how to see out there. They'll learn how to read life, to discern villains heroes, protagonists, to see themselves even. And once they learn to see the world that way, then they can withstand the crap. Then that seduction is gone. They're not going to get let off uh, on a little leash somewhere else. Reading life informs our criticism of stories. 
and it's the stories that shape our criticism of life. Be shaped by the right ones before you can reshape or challenge the wrong ones. And pray that you are not Mr. Collins. That's all I have to say. Get down on your knees and pray that God would just change me a little bit. I don't care if I'm a goof. I don't care if I'm the one getting laughed at. Just not him. Uh, change, change that. And remember, one last application of this. As far as viewing yourself and understanding the omnipresence of a narrator, understanding that God's writing it immediately, that he's all present and all knowing, changes temptation like no one's business. You have some, some teenage son who struggles with lust. You know, he's, he's got the hormones roaring and you, you walk past that dirty magazine and he struggles. He wants to look. But if you sat down with him as his father and slid him a dirty magazine across the table and said, son, this is a test. I just want to see if you're going to look. And you, is he going to look? Like, here I am, boy. I'm going to check you. We're doing a little test. Uh, see how you're handling your lustfulness. Here's a playboy. I'm going to, I'm hoping you're not going to open it, but I'm here to check. See, see if you're going to. You know, is he going to start whistling and looking around? Then kind of peek in the cover. <laughs> no. You're sitting right there watching. Oh, I hope he wouldn't. He's a complete idiot if he does. <laughs> you're right there. And communicating to your children that God is right there. When you're walking down the alley and you're 14 years old and somebody threw a dirty magazine in the bushes and that temptation happens, that somebody was sent by God to throw a dirty magazine in the bushes to see how you're going to do. And if you start whistling and looking around, the first thing you have to do in order to go look at that magazine is become an atheist. Like That's step one in all sin. Deny the omnipresence of God, quickly become an atheist, peak, feel bad, retract your atheism and apologize. I mean, that's, that's the process we go through. God is everywhere. He is omnipresent. He is that narrator. Everything that happens in front of you is him speaking. See yourself as a character. And while it, that's not just going to magically remove your own fallen state, it is going to make that true and honest self-perception is going to make walking faithfully a lot easier and is going to make your immune system and your children's immune systems in resisting pop culture a lot easier as well that's all i've got time for thanks a bunch if you enjoyed this episode be sure to check out the full series the church and pop culture available now on canon plus Plus.